2 Kings 18, and then I'm going to read one verse from 2 Chronicles 32. You can go there if you'd like. It's one verse, 2 Chronicles 32. But my main reading is going to be from 2 Kings 18. I do not mean to keep you standing, but it will save me time uh, later if, as I read, I make just some pointed comments. Verse 1, 2 Kings 18, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. We know that the northern kingdom was different from the southern kingdom of Judah. They had split uh, many, many, many generations earlier. We also know that Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, was one of the more wicked, vile kings ever to sit on Judah's throne. And isn't it amazing that a wretch like that could produce such a wonderful man such as Hezekiah? 25 years old was he, Hezekiah, when he began to reign. He reigned 20 and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. Note, he did that which was right, thank God, in the sight of the Lord, according to the benchmark of greatness, time and time again, they either did according to what David did or they did not. He became the benchmark. According, he did that which was right according to all that David his father did. Notice he removed the high places, break down the images, cut down the groves, break in pieces the brazen Serpent, that when the serpents were biting everybody because of their rebellion, Moses was commanded to make a brazen serpent and everyone that looked upon it was healed of their bitten malady. Well, the people made an idol out of it and they'd been worshiping it for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So he took that brazen serpent and broke it in pieces Verse 5, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel, and notice this, so that none or after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. That's an amazing statement. For he clave to the Lord, he departed not from following him, but kept his commandments. So this man became his own Benchmark. Then a really amazing, odd verse. Second Chronicles 32, verse 31. Second Chronicles 32, verse 31. How be it? That's never good, is it? In the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, God left him. He left that good man. He left him to try him that he might know all that was in his heart. 
Now, let's ask our great God and Savior to really deeply, profoundly talk to every one of us tonight. Lord Jesus, we are exceedingly mindful of you, of your presence, of your great, great goodness and mercy. We're asking that we might know your ways and see your grace manifest, God, your love manifest, that you would have your perfect way and will tonight. We commit our hearts, our every single heart, and this service completely into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Thank you so much for your patience in standing. You may certainly be seated. Now, uh, because we did take the time to uh, list, enunciate a little bit of the credos that this man we're dealing with, we understand that this is a very exceptional man. And uh, David, the benchmark for kings, because he was a man after God's own heart, much, 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 and much good speculation has gone into why God would place an accolade like that on David. We know the many, many wondrous, wonderful things he did. We're also aware that his life was not perfect, and that between the horrid fiasco with Bathsheba, the slaying of her husband or having him slayed by enemies to which he had pulled himself back from, his numbering of the people and the fact that he just basically wasn't a very good father, never even saying to his children, at least to Adonijah, what are you doing? Uh, he had some flaws, some deep ones, but he did know how to repent thoroughly, deeply, and powerfully. And don't ever, 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 ever underestimate that, ever. And don't ever else underestimate that for whatever reason God had wrapped up in David to call him a man after mine own heart. You might take note of this. He was the first man in Scripture, in Scripture, to tell God that he loved him. Abraham feared him and God knows what a great man, Joseph, Moses, all these. But, jo but David was the first one to say, I love you, Lord. So that's something else to consider. And so he was his own benchmark. Now this man, there was nobody quite like him. So however great David was, there was areas and arenas where Hezekiah was, was, was more special in his own way. Neither before or after. There is one man after, a descendant of Hezekiah and David, named Josiah, that it says, never was there anybody like him before or after. But it qualifies it, that says, that did so seek the Lord like did Josiah. So he was noted because of his utterly, absolutely intense seeking of God and to keep his word. And in fact, so great was Josiah that when he died in a, uh, in a battle to which he shouldn't even have been involved, it, it triggered a heartbreak, a heart 
sorrow, a breaking up of the prophet Jeremiah, that the Holy Ghost would use that and he would pen a book called Lamentations. And it was the death of Josiah that triggered that, that unbelievable book. So with this all being said, we're, we understand we're dealing with a very exceptional man. Even secular historians give this man credit. There are other secular historians who don't even believe David existed. Duh. But thank God his name was found on a column about five years ago, so that finally shut them up. But um, you give God enough time, he takes care of the scoffers. But be all that as it may, uh, this man Hezekiah, I was reading uh, events that changed world history. And a secular author, he wasn't, he wasn't attributing it to the miracle and God intervening, but he does state that a turning point in the history of the world was when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, had surrounded Jerusalem with his 180,000-man army. And that boasting, cursing, vile, braggart, proud man woke up to find every one of his men dead. And even a secular historian stated that had that army not died, been defeated, that... Jerusalem would have fallen, they would have been slain, Hezekiah would have produced no seed, and there would hence be no Jesus Christ born. And not that he was a believer in Jesus Christ, but without him, he knew he did change the world. So, so this man is very, very special. And then we come to Second Chronicles, written probably by Ezra. Uh, it is definitely after the children of Israel come from Babylon that it's written. And, 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 and they, this insight is given. Now, after Sennacherib had been defeated and then he had been slain by his own boys, uh, during, during all of this situation, Hezekiah is very, very sick. And then... Isaiah is spoken to by God. Isaiah goes to Hezekiah says, Set your house in order, thou shalt die and not live. That's pretty plain. Then he turns his face to the wall and begins to beseech and weep and cry out to his God. And before Isaiah is outside the middle court, God says, Go back. I've heard his cry. And he says, You've got 15 more years. Amen. So ambassadors... From It's not a fledgling nation. Babylon is a great nation. But, but they have not yet taken on, by any means, that world preeminence that they would under Nebuchadnezzar. But these ambassadors come, and uh, they come to Hezekiah to see the wonder. Because Hezekiah was so blessed, and Israel, Judah rather, was so, so blessed with him, that it became a wander of the earth, let alone what happened to the Assyrian army and, and his riches and his husbandry. And, all. and so there was nothing in the kingdom. He didn't show him. And then he took him to his house and there was no chamber. There was no closet. There was no, there was no storeroom. There was no special place. There was, he showed them every treasure, no doubt magnificent treasures that had been gathered and garnered by 
the kings through the centuries that he had accumulated, some of Solomon's, some of David's. And so when they left, Isaiah said, I'm going to interpolate here, what did, what did they see in your house? Here's the inter- well, uh, do what? What did they see in your house? Everything. There's nothing they didn't see. Well, every treasure their eyes beheld, thus saith the Lord, Babylon is coming back and they will take every single item that was seen during their trek here today. So Hezekiah's long, long dead. Ahaz, his son, that, or excuse me, Manasseh, his son, is long, long dead. Josiah then dies on and on. But the Babylonians come. They didn't come as retribution because of this lack of discretion on Hezekiah's part. Nebuchadnezzar came because of the utter, absolute, abject wickedness that Judah embraced after Hezekiah's death during the reign of Manasseh and on down through Zedekiah and Joachim and et cetera, et cetera, Josiah being the only exception. And, 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 and that's why God judged them. But had Hezekiah not shown them everything, the inference is, is that some of those things somehow, some way would have been spared. But the most interesting thing is that this this lack of discretion, this lack of intuitive, you know, I don't think, we're not going in there right now. And uh, this lack, but this this business of everything, this lack of, 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 of something took place because God stepped back from him. Though he was in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord was on him as it was on David. And, and, and it was on them, and it was a kind of a residual encompassing of God's Spirit. But it's not like the Holy Ghost that you can have today. The Holy Ghost today dwells in you. It dwells in you. And you better take care of it. Because he said, Paul said, I'm persuaded it's in you except you be reprobate. So if you go so far that the Spirit leaves that temple such as it left Ezekiel's destructions next. Now I'm just, I'm just talking here. I don't under, pretend to understand all this stuff. But if somebody has walked with God, had the Holy Ghost, and left God... There may be just a tiny residual enough left of the Spirit of God, not enough to get them out of this world by no means. That's got to be renewed. But there's enough left that he can be crucified daily. So, but the, the Spirit of the Lord that was on them in those days. David said, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't take it from me. And, and we know that God came back to Hezekiah, but... But it's like he just stepped back. One translation says, God withdrew from Hezekiah in order to test him and to see what was really in his heart. Another paraphrase, God left him to see what he would do. He wanted to test his heart. And, and, uh, and then another one puts it on this wise. 
God left him by himself in order to test him. This is the, this is the common Jewish Bible. So that he might know everything that was in his heart. He just stepped back and left him on his own for just enough time that he didn't do sinfully. It wasn't sinful. Nothing that he did was sinful. But it wasn't the smartest thing he ever did. Now, there's three things we learn from that. And I'm starting slow. And I got news. We may end slow. But I have a burden in my heart tonight. There are several lessons we need to learn from here. I'm going to give you three of them. Number one, everybody ready? We need God's grace continually. We need him. God, I don't, I don't want to let you go for a second. Don't let me go for a second. I, I got to have you in my heart, my mind, my soul, my spirit. I want, I want you on me, in me, with me at all times, please. Number two, God is going to know what's in us. Now, this is interesting. Why couldn't God just know what was in him without backing off from him? Why was it that God said to Abraham, now Abraham, you waited 25 years to get this child of promise. And you have doted on this child now for many years. And so when, when one day God speaks to Abraham and says, take thy son Isaac, thine only son whom thou lovest, to the top of a mount that I will show thee, and offer him there as a burnt sacrifice unto me. We're not talking about a little boy. We're talking about a young man at minimum in his strong teens that is strong enough to carry enough wood up a mountain that once laid out, it would be enough wood that once he was slain, it would burn him up as a burnt offering. This is a big pile of wood. So if he's strong enough to carry that much wood, let's just say he was 20. He might have been 17, 18, 20. He could have been 33. Be that as it may, if he's that strong to carry that much wood to the top, he's also strong enough to take a 120-year-old man and throw him off a hill. So he, Abraham was being checked out, and Isaac was being checked out. And Isaac looks around and he says, now here's fire and here's wood. And I see the knife on your hip, if you please. But I don't see the offering. God will provide himself a lamb. For now, son, lay down. And he didn't have to, he didn't have to gag him and he didn't have to tie him. He didn't have to truss him. He laid down willingly. No doubt he shuddered and shivered and no doubt he groaned and no doubt he closed his eyes. But his father raised that knife and God said, stop, don't touch him. Now I know that thou fearest me. Now I know, don't touch him. And in fact, I know a lot about Isaac right now too, if you please. And, 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 and so it's like God this omniscient God that knows everything nevertheless has chosen dimensions whereby when he experiences something with us, it's chalked up as now I really know. Because it's not just future tense, it's acted out. Good or bad, he knows. 
Okay? Anybody glad for the blood? Anybody glad for mercy? Anybody glad? Okay? And here's the third thing that's very important about that lesson. Listen, we need to know what lurks within us. Amen. David said, try me, Lord. See if there be any wicked way in me. He probably said that before he fell with Bathsheba. But he asked God to try. He said, I want to know if there's something in me that's not right. Well, when he got done repenting, buddy, he knew. He knew. He knew. He knew. He knew. So so point being, we need God's grace at all time. Amen. God is going to know. We need to know what lurks within us. The reason all this is so huge is because Jesus said in 15.5, the gospel of John, without me, you can't do anything. Without me, you can do nothing. We need him. And the apostle Paul, writing from a Roman jail, said, I can do all things through Christ. Without him, I can't do anything. With him, I can do all things. So we need him. We've got to have him. Amen. This is why in Ephesians 2, also written from the same Roman jail, that in the ages to come, he, our great, great God, might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Amen. So we need him at all times. We need to know if there's anything in us that'll keep us from going all the way, that we can work on it and take care of it. And when we get there, amen, we know in Revelations 4, 10, and 11, we will be part of that number that is given a crown but we will take those crowns off our heads and throw them at his feet. I want an old running buddy. In fact, in the book, Journey of a Lifetime, the first face to my right, that boy's name is Mike. And he read that book and got saved. Interesting thing about, I hadn't talked to him in 30 years, he called me sobbing. This is Mike. Mike, Mike, Mike broke it. What? He was sobbing. I said, Mike, what's wrong? He said, I just read your book. He said, you got the, have you got that book with you? I said, well, I can get it. He said, go to page, I don't remember what it was, 200 and something, something. And uh, I, thought he was, I thought I told a story about him or something. I didn't know what I did. And he said, this, I don't know what this means, but it's just tearing me to pieces. You know what he was looking at? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. He said, that's tearing me up. So I went back there and preached. His wife got the Holy Ghost, baptized both of them, and a week later, he got the Holy Ghost. Amen. He's just a big God. And we went, but, but he hit the wall a couple of years later. He hit the wall bad. Ooh, he hit the wall bad. But God picked him up. Good church picked him up. They loved him back to health. And then he, he felt so bad. He said, oh, Larry, I'm so sure. I said, well, I'll tell you what, Mike. Let's just do this. At that great day, let's me and you go to the back of that big crowd that no man can number. 
and let's take off our crowns with everybody else and let's see who can throw their crown the furthest. We'll just find out who can throw their crown the furthest. I got a feeling there's a lot of people going to be going to the back of the crowd because we know how good he's been to us. How good he's been. How good he's been. Amen. We need him every hour. We need him every minute. There's not a second we don't need him. Amen. I got I to gotta, I gotta, I gotta take off my watch and see what I'm doing here. I'll go for a while, but when I stop, I stop. That gives you hope. I had a friend of mine named Nicky. He was from Iran. He came to God. I came to God in 72. He came to God... I'm thinking about 73 or 4, he was a foreign exchange student. He came and, and they gave him, somebody gave him a Bible study and he was turned off, but he found out they were strict monotheists. So that perked his interest. And then he found out that Jesus was that monotheistic God robed in flesh. And then he got the Holy Ghost. He got baptized in Jesus' name. And I love Nicky. He was a good boy. We didn't go to the same church, but... We saw each other, meetings and this and that, and I was good friends with the people that want him. And Anyway, he went back to Iran, and he was going to tell his parents, I'm still monotheistic, but I, I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian. But he choked. He didn't. It wasn't that they would have stoned him or killed him. The people there today would. But his family, he said, what they'll do is they'll disown me. If I get back to the States, I'll have to find my own way. They won't allow me in the house. They won't allow me to sleep there. They will give me never another dime. They will write my name out of the will until the day they're all dead. Not one family member will ever repeat my name verbally. Well, he choked, and then he came back. He was back for another year, and then he went back, and he choked again. And uh, so a friend of mine, church he was in, pastor friend of mine was preaching one morning, and he was on the front row, and and while he was while he was teaching, actually, this this boy went, Nikki went, oh, 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 and he couldn't breathe. He started turning blue, red, then blue, and and of course here come the people sweeping around. And the pastor said, "Everybody stand back." And this wasn't his nature, but he said, "Everybody get back. This is God." And they stepped back and. He fell over on the seat, and his eyes were big, and he was turning purple. And a little old lady at the outside of the crowd gave a cry in tongues. And somebody on this side of the crowd gave the interpretation. I have your next breath in my hand. Fear not what man can do to thee. But rather fear me, for I have your next breath in my hand. And when the message was finished, Nicky went, <gasps> and he could breathe, and his color came back. And then a few years later, he went back, but it was in good timing. It was about the time that the Ayatollah Rahola Khomeini left France, and Amijanadab was one of the students that was rioting. And then they took the consulate captive and took our 
ambassador and all of our people there. I remember when the Shah was disposed and the Ayatollah was there. I was pastoring in Miami, Oklahoma, and there was an old man. He'd got the Holy Ghost in 1910. He got the revelation in 1915 in Houston. Charlie Smith went there and preached. And he and Charlie Smith together left Houston and went right up the road to Elton and taught at the Elton Bible Conference together. And so I've recorded him 13 hours of, of history that the University of Birmingham, England, told Talmadge French that right there, and two other things he had will guarantee you a PhD. They're impressed with it, be that as it may. And, and so this old man, he was reading the paper about the disposed Shah, or him leaving, hoping to come back, I'll never forget this moment, but at the time, I didn't catch it. He folded up the paper and he said, Brother Booker? I said, yes. He was in his 90s at that time. He said, this business in Iran. I said, yes. I hadn't been paying that close of attention, you know. He said, this is the beginning of sorrows for the United States of America. This is before they took one person captive. This is the now here we are in 2016 and we're still dealing with Iran. And they're shooting off missiles saying death to Israel and all this stuff and we're giving them money to do it. Okay. Scratch that itch later. But anyhow. So beginning of sorrows for America. And, and so God is going to know what everything, everywhere is made out of. And like Nikki, he still holds our next breath. Yes, he does. However many heartbeats your heart has beat since you entered this house, you have that many heartbeats less. The sands of the hourglass are dripping, dripping, and they are running out. Now, in the book of Exodus, if a man had a Hebrew servant, i.e. slash slave, he could have him for six years, but when it went into the seventh year, he was to go to that servant and say, here's the deal. The year is coming, the end. And you can stay and be a member of our household and still work, or you can go out free. It's up to you. Now, if he came and he didn't have a wife, but he got a wife there in the house, had kids in there, if he left, you leave them. You don't take them. Okay? But if he came with them, and, 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 and he said, but you make up your choice. So, so at the end of that time, Every master found out how every servant felt about his house. If he wanted to stay or go. Can I tell you something about being born again of the water and the spirit? We become members of the household of faith. And I'm not saying that God leaves us, but there comes times in the road of life that we feel like, Maybe he's left us. We don't feel strong grace, strong unction, strong. 
the, the, the verse, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord, may not be in our lips and maybe not even in our hearts. We just, maybe we've been missing church too much. Maybe we've been, been on the job too much or maybe we've been this too much or that too much. And, 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 and so we've been living for God for a while. We think everything's cool. But, but he said to the servant, I'm gonna know now. Stick around, Doc. Just teasing. He said, I'm going to know now what you want to do. You came into the church. You didn't have a wife and kids. You came in. God gave you a wife and kids. Now you want to leave. Don't take them out. God gave them to you in this house of faith. Don't go dragging them out with you. And so if he said, I want to stay, even till the last second, he was to take him to the door and to put his ear against the doorpost. You can't put your ear against the doorpost with the door closed. The door had to be open. Meaning your ear is at the doorpost. You can see that world and you can see in the house. Up to the last second, you can say no. I'm going out there. Or you can say, I'll stay. And it all would go to your ear in a boom. A little hole in that ear. Indicative of ear hearing. He would never hear the same again. And we come to places in the road of life sometimes where people have gone out and they find out that out there is not really what they thought it would be. Such as a rich young ruler that said, Father, give me, give me the goods that belong to me. And the father gave to him. And not many days later, can I tell you, he had his ear to the door of the house. And he's looking out at the world out there. And he's looking at his father's house. And he goes. For a while, he's having quite a time. If there was letters coming home to his elder brother, he'd be having a great time. Wish you were here. Letters maybe saying, man, if I'd have known it was this much fun, I'd have done it years ago. Sometimes when people leave God, they can kind of talk like that. Listen to me. The famine always arises. It's never if. It's never if, it's always when. And you can say, well, but man, they got good cars and nice houses. No, 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 no. You can be like the man that talked to me one time. I was preaching back east. When you live in California, everywhere is back east. And he came up to me after service and he sat down. I was waiting for the pastor and he said, I feel like telling you a story. Can I tell you? I said, sure, I got time. He said, many years ago, he said, I had a beautiful, brand new, built, multi-bedroom home, four-car garage. I had three brand new cars, had beautiful children, had a beautiful wife. I was a blessing to the church. He said, but I began, I got cold, I got And he said, so 
time went on and I found myself sitting in a little tiny hovel of a house in a stuffed chair that is so ripped up and the stuffing was out everywhere and the linoleum was walked through and the window panes were almost just the wind would rip through and, and he said my world was wretched. I'd lost the cars, I'd lost my children, they hated me, my wife abhorred me. And he said, I was sitting there and I had a 45 caliber pistol on my leg. And he said, I made this statement, God, you said you wouldn't put more on me than I could bear. He said, I can't take it anymore. And I put the barrel in my mouth and I pulled back the hammer and I put my thumb on the trigger and he said, Brother Booker, it's the only time in my life God has ever spoke to me. But he spoke to me. Well, he just sat there. I thought, duh. What did he say? He said, you want to know what he said? I As I started putting pressure on the trigger, he said, you made your decisions, not me. And he thought, one by one, every decision I made flashed before me. And I removed my thumb from the trigger, and I said, God, you're right. My decisions got me here. And if you'll help me by the grace of God, my decisions will get me out of this mess. He said, Brother Booker, that was six years ago. I'm back full of the Holy Ghost. He said, I've got a nice house. It's not like that. It's not new. I've got two good, really good cars. They're not brand new. He said, but my kids love me now. They come and see me. My wife has given me rights. said, I'll never get her back. That's gone but said, my kids love me. And he said, every way I can, I bless the church in the kingdom. We find out things. We find out things. I, uh, I recently read, well, I, I didn't read the book. I listened to it on audio. There was cassette tapes. Duh. And I ordered them because I had a good friend of mine as Brother Kraft, as a matter of fact, and he, he went to a ranch that used to be not far from where I lived. I lived up on Highway 101, not far. I pastored for 12 and a half years. I had some horses. I had sheep, and I had, well, whatever. And, but there was a man down in the Santa Ynez Mountains above Santa Barbara, and uh, Brother Kraft went to go spend a week on his ranch. Now, he had to pay 4000 bucks for that week. But he said it was worth it. And uh, the man's name is Monty Roberts. Some of you may have heard of the name. Monty Roberts was born in Salinas, Kansas, excuse me, Salinas, California, in 1936, I think it was. And his father had a ranch there in the, in the Salinas Valley, 
and his father was a rancher and he broke horses and did all kinds of stuff. But according to him, he said, my father was not a nice man. And I used to watch him break horses and, and he was harsh in the way it was. And, and breaking horses can be a tough business. When I was uh, 12, 13-ish, me and my cousin Virgil, we used to get paid five bucks a head for every horse we could break. But it were Shetland ponies. But to those of you that know Shetland ponies, they can be really mean, dude. And so I thought, this is easy money. Yeah, right. And so we'd get on the thing and got to settle down the, And, the, and the, the pony, every one of them, they had this mentality. Okay, there's a cement. Well, good. There's a barbed wire fence. Wonderful. There's a, there's a, there's a fence. Good. That's fine. It didn't care. It didn't care if it got hurt as long as it hurt you. And so, whether it's cement or whatever, and they went straight for it, and well, I didn't make many $5 bills, but I made enough to realize, I think I will do something else. <laughs> and, I'm, and, and I know what we used to do, and so I'm, I'm reading Monty Roberts' book, The Man Who Listens to Horses, years ago, and I got under so much condemnation because he abhorred the way his father treated horses and him and his family. And, and then they would go out into areas where there were wild horses. And they're still there in California and in Nevada and in Arizona. Not far from where I used to live. And then, and they would, uh, and he'd watch these horses. He watched horses. He picked up things and he, he watched them back at the ranch. And he realized these horses he thought were talking to themselves. I mean, to others, to each other. Long story short, at 15 this language that he now calls equius, he went out into the area east of Santa Margarita, about a, that's north of me, about 45 minutes. And at 15, he went there and he's stalking these wild horses and he, what he calls joining, he joined himself to a horse. It was a long, long process. He didn't have to be cruel, mean. He won him. He harnessed his face, he, he saddled him, and he rode him back home. And when he rode back to his father's ranch, they said, you got the luck of the draw. That horse was already broke. Somebody did that, and it just got loose. Nobody believed him. Well, long story short, the Queen of England believed him. Because he's done things for the Queen of England, and he's done things all over the world. They bring the wildest, craziest horses they got. Usually it's 20 minutes. At the most, it's 30. You put him in a round circle, and he does body language, and he watches them, and he goes. And within 20 to 30 minutes, he has them bridled, saddled, blanketed, saddled, and is riding the horse. He's done it all over the world. He has people that pay him big money to learn the language. He has a ranch in Santa Ynez, not far from Reagan's Ranch, which was not far from Michael Jackson's Never Never Land. And, uh, and there they would, there would be. And so then the years went by, he's done it for the queen, he's done it all over the world, and he's 62 years of age. And he gets to wondering, I've never broke but one horse that was totally in the wild with Equus. I wonder if I could do it again. 
Now, apparently, I found this out. I got this message a week ago. I preached this message the first time a week ago Sunday in our church. I preached it before I got here at one of the places I've been. And somebody told me, they said, there's actually a documentary on this. I haven't watched it. Says, All right. I listened to the tapes. Apparently, the BBC wanted to be in on it. Be all that as it may. He decides, I'm going to try it. He, he gets some of his students. He gets some of his friends. They go up to Santa Margarita. They go out east, and they go as far as they can. Then they get their horses. They get their, they're ready to go camping, and they find some of the herds out there. And he's watching, and he sees this one horse. He really takes a shine to it. He thinks, I like that horse. And, and, and so he, on a horse, separates that horse from the other horses. And he's 62 years of age, and he spends 36 hours in the saddle, except for one three-hour nap. His horse get thirsty, that horse thirsty. Where He had to use two different horses, both of them trained by him. When he got his first break with this horse, he noticed he was heading north, 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 and thought, why is he? And then he remembered, there is a, somebody put a water trough way. I wonder if he's going to that water trough. And sure enough, that's where he went to this water trough. Well, he talks in the book about how cold he was as he's going through the night. Well, he gets there, and he's about 30, 40 yards away from this horse, and this, this wild Mustang goes to get a drink. He goes to get a drink. He tries and tries, and he gets, he's wondering, what's wrong with that? So it goes off about 30, 40 yards, and he comes and he finds out why, because the ice has froze over. So he gets in the saddlebag, he breaks the ice, and his horse very happily drinks that ice-cold water. And this horse is watching him. Then he backs his horse away, and this horse comes to the water and drinks. It was the first breakthrough. Eventually, he's befriended him. He's put the halter on him, the blanket, and he rides him back to camp. He gets him in the trailer with the other horses that go back down and it becomes a very famous case. It's a very famous situation, apparently. Well, the problem was is that over the next year, he said he had hundreds of people, literally hundreds of people, say, how do you know that horse is happier? What makes you think he wouldn't rather be out there? Why? How did you better this horse? And you can't exactly, I mean, equus is equus, but you can't say, tell me, man. So, it finally bothers him so much, he says, all right. He gets his students, he gets his friends, they get him in the trailers, they go back up to Santa Margarita, they head back east. It's in that area between Highway 101 and Highway 5, wilderness. And then he's got the horse that he has named Shy Boy. I would call what I'm preaching the saga of Shy Boy, but that's not the title. I'll give you the title a little bit later. So Shy Boy is with him, and when they first spot, hear 
the winnings of the herd, he said, shy boy, perked up. As they got closer and they were seeing him, he said, shy boy would become agitated. His ears were forward. He was, he was intense. So they come to the place where they're going to make camp. They make the camp. They get all their gear out. They, they cook the food. And, and it's getting just towards dark. Shy boy is agitated. Off in the distance, there'll be a whinny. And so then he, the camp's getting very quiet. He takes shy boy to the edge of the camp. Shy boy's looking. He removes the halter. He said he never even looked back. It was like a racehorse at the Kentucky Derby when they opened the gates. And off shy boy ran as fast as he could into the night. turn, he comes back into camp and ain't nobody talking. They're looking in the rims of their coffee there. He says, I'm, I'm going to bed early. I'm tired. So he, he, he goes, but he said it was an all but sleepless night. Will he come back? Will he come back? Which world does he love? Next morning he was the first one up because he was never the one to sleep. But they're going to cook breakfast and they did everything in slow motion. They drug it out as long as they could. Then... And the talk is so minimal. It's just like, yes, no, it's, it's everybody's heart's heavy. It's, and then they, they well, let's break camp. So they're breaking camp. But again, everybody's just slow motion. And, but they get the horses all ready to go back, 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 way back to where the trailers are. And Monty Roberts said he had his hand on the saddle horn in the back. And he was putting his foot in the stirrup. And in behind him, he heard a whinny. And he turned. And about 250 yards away, shy boy was just standing. Let's all stand. Musicians come. And Monty Roberts... He didn't say this, but I can't, I know he's a cowboy and he's tough, but come on. I can't imagine his breath, his intake, his heart. And he said, shy boy's looking at him. And then he puts one hoof forward and then another, and he just starts walking. Nobody is saying anything. Even the horses are quiet. They're watching shy boys. He slowly walked. He said he got about a hundred yards away and he stopped. 
And he just stood there looking at Monty Roberts, probably the way many of you are looking at me. And he's waiting, and he just stood there. And then the horse bolted. Monty just, he's running as fast as he can, full throttle. And he stops 10 yards away. And he's staring at Monty Roberts. Monty's just standing there. He's just standing there. He's not moving. And shy boy comes. Monty Roberts is not moving. And he puts his nose and he nuzzles him. And that's when Monty Roberts, he's still too tough to say he cried. But he grabbed that horse's neck and he hugged him for everything he was worth. And here's the title of what I've been preaching to you. Coming home, never more to Rome. That horse was there. He saw the old buddies. The old crew he used to run with. But it didn't matter. I can't speak for the horse what went through his mind. But back home, these, these horses, they'll kick me. They'll fight for position. They want the, But back home, there's somebody that loves me. If I get sick, they'll, they'll give me medicine. If I get hungry, they'll feed me. And it won't be this rancid stuff out here. At home, I don't have to worry when I get thirsty. They've always got what I need to quench my thirst. At home, they groom me. At home, they hug me. At home, they care for me. Can I tell you something? There's no place like home. Is anybody glad for the home place? Anybody glad that God loves us? Anybody glad? Is anybody glad he's here tonight? Can I tell you, he's here. The Father has run. He's been looking. You say, but I got a long ways to go. He met him while he was afar off. The boy was ready to come home. You say, oh, yeah, but he was in the hog pen. Who wouldn't come home? No, 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 no. That dad died one day. That boy had an elder brother. I hope he changed. But somewhere years later, you can mark this down. That boy had money, and he thought about the old boys and the parties. And he said, no. I've had all that I want. I'm staying in the house. I'm staying with I'm staying with God's people because I'm going to God's heaven. And right now I'm opening this altar. I'm opening it to everybody. You may be here and maybe you've just been feeling like I don't know where God's at. Maybe he's withdrawn. 
for me to see what I want. Well, I want you to know, God, you're what I want. I want to be close to you. I want to love you. I want to feel you. I want to know you. I want to do your work. Or maybe you're here today like shy boy. You ran off in the night, but you're back because God loves you. Come on, sir. Come on, ma'am. Come on, young man. Come on, young lady. Come on, ma'am. Come on. Come on. Come on, mama. Come on, daddy. Come on. It's a good time. It's a good time for anybody. It's a good time for everybody. Come on, God's calling, God's reaching. That's God tugging at your heart. Come on, sir, come on. Come on, come on, child of God. You feel something beating in your heart? God, I want to cinch it up tonight. I'm yours and you're mine. And by the grace of God, I'm not going anywhere. Let's gather, sir. Let's gather, ma'am. Come on, come on. God loves you tonight. You're not here because you thought it was a good idea. God brought you because he cares about you. He loves you. Come on, sir. Come on, ma'am. He's tugging at your heart. He's here to help. Come on, he's here to help. He loves you. Come on, he's here to help. He cares about you. That's it. That's it. Come on, yes, that's it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Come on.